0: Come and show me the magic. Can I
1: take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll
0: come and see me in the
1: movies. What a scene of your Hollywood song! Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker.
0: I'm Ed Williamson.
1: We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 1998's The Brian Epstein Story, a made-for-TV documentary about Beatles manager Brian Epstein that's originally aired as two episodes split across two nights as part of the BBC Arena documentary series, and which ultimately went on to win a BAFTA. The episodes were then truncated into a 90-minute version and rebroadcast in subsequent years. Uh, But let's get into it. Ed, as a film that calls itself The Brian Epstein Story, how well do you think it tells that story? Does it do the man justice?
0: well it's hard to know isn't it i suppose uh in that these are the sort of source texts that we have to examine to know the kind of man that brian was um i think that the cast of characters it assembles to do this the job of talking heads are people who knew him very well it, it certainly is not a documentary that could be accused of you know having steve diggle say what kind of uh, man he thought brian <laughs> epstein was and um Uh, And sorry, yeah, Steve, maybe we should... Are we going to use Steve Diggle as like shorthand for an unworthy talking head on a documentary? For now
1: and forevermore.
0: It seems a bit unfair, to be honest. But anyway, yeah, it's it's not a documentary that could be accused of skimping on its uh, talking heads. The people in it are people who properly knew him and, and properly are qualified to talk about him. But I do think that... There's a fair bit of surface detail, and it doesn't necessarily always scratch below it.
1: That that was my main takeaway from it. I I feel like there's documentaries that I feel do this better. What is it that they're doing differently? And I I can't really quite put my finger on it, Mm. but I I came away from watching this thinking that there are lots of nice things and great claims made by those talking heads about Brian Epstein. But I still didn't really feel like the documentary showed that to me. I feel like I was being told it, but I wasn't really given a sense of seeing that play out in any way. It might just be down to the fact that there's lack of footage of uh, of that to sort of back up those kinds of comments. But the documentary kind of felt like it took a bit of a, a cold approach to its subject. But at the same time, you have all of these people that were in Brian's life talking about him very warmly.
0: Yeah, if it, it feels, it feels almost like a documentary that's at war with its uh, participants. You know, like they they're in a slightly different film than the one it it wants to make. I think the the, the way it, it the way it sort of does its framing is is interesting, and that coldness that you speak of, I think a lot of it comes from that. So as you as you rightly say. A subject matter like this, you're, you're often dealing with a sort of dearth of footage, right? Mm. So, you know, if you, you think about the the nuts and bolts that put together a documentary like this, you have uh, you, you have your talking heads They're you know, they're sitting in a room talking about Brian. And every now and again, they might sort of walk down the street. There's an awful lot of people walking down uh, Chapel Street uh, where he lived and just sort of looking up at his house. And Marianne Faithful is sort of uh, going out on her balcony in Kensington, it seems like, <laughs> yes. and just sort of looking out into the distance, you know. So, like, uh, these things are there because the story needs to be driven along in some way uh, uh, and also that there needs to be some kind of visual stimulus for it not just to be a podcast, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but that's fine. It's not That's how documentaries work, you know. I, I
1: think there's the, the, it made me think of uh, archive footage I use as well. I think within the first few minutes I, I i don't know why this struck me but there was a uh, narration talking about brian and I, I guess talking about his legacy and the footage that that was um playing over was of the beatles meeting royalty mm. and it just kind of struck me it's like well you're talking about brian and you're talking about him being very charismatic i believe i think it was at the time mm. but, and then, I, and I had, I was looking at the screen. I was like, "Oh no, wait! There's, there's Brian there at the side." So the Beatles are there using royalty, and then there's Brian is also in shot, just about. Mm. And I was like, and I was just, it just occurs to me, like, have you used that because it's another shot that just happens to have Brian in, and you've only yeah. got so many of those that you can use. Right, right. But it just, it felt like an odd. You'd normally, I guess, while someone's talking about how charismatic a person is you'd normally show underneath that footage of that person being charismatic. You know, like you're yeah. having a bit more, showing some personality, smiling at someone or or something. It just like an odd choice.
0: Yeah, actually, you know, it's interesting you bring up that example because I think that kind of illustrates how sometimes you might watch a documentary and read something into it that is actually just, uh, it was just a practical thing of yeah. like, well, that's all they had. Because to be honest, like I watched that and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because uh, there's a lot in sort of, Brian's story about two worlds colliding, if you like, Uh, this idea of him growing up in a very middle class, uh, fairly privileged environment in sort of Liverpool's Jewish community. And uh, then, you know, one of the main mental images you always have in your head, because it's a story that's so often told, is Brian walking from NEMS up Matthew Street and into the cavern you know, one lunchtime and being greeted with this whole new world, Mm. you know, which he describes in an interview that's on this and it's in the anthology as well. Um, you know, it's, it's like going down the stairs to this kind of smoky, dank atmosphere, you know, that thing of kind of two worlds colliding. I, I felt like, uh, I was watching that, of them meeting the queen and I thought, oh, that's interesting. They're sort of making that point visually that this, this is an environment that, uh, Brian is comfortable in meeting somebody like the Queen. Mm. He knows how to behave in those situations, Mm. Uh, and the Beatles don't necessarily. And that you know, uh, this is part of uh, what his value was to them. Maybe they, uh, maybe they're sort of illustrating it with that footage, or as you say, it may have just been because that was the only footage they had. Yeah, it
1: sounds to me like you're saying that that was an artistic choice that delivers. An important subtext in the documentary that I just didn't get.
0: Well, (laughs) I mean, uh, let's not rule that out. (laughs) I mean, certainly, you know, previous evidence showed us shows us that we can't rule that out. (laughs)
1: It's a tad hard. It's interesting you talk about actually. I I think one of the uh, going back to this uh, idea of the documentary not necessarily getting under the the skin of, of Brian as a person. One of the best points I've felt that was made in the documentary. I think it was Marianne Faithfull who said that that you had these young talented artists, and they actually needed Brian to be able to bridge that 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 gap to help them be successful in the industry. Yeah, because he was that bit older, and because he was that sort of bit more uh, wealthy and I, I guess m- m- more privileged, he was able to I guess talk the talk. Hmm. that that helped open doors for these artists yeah and i hadn't thought about that and I thought that was really interesting so it's not necessarily that he harnessed he, he he saw their talent and harnessed them and then and then was able to package them in a commercial way but actually hmm. it was they wouldn't have been able to do that for themselves because they wouldn't have known how to have those conversations and have those relationships with the people that that they'd need to talk to yeah which i thought was really interesting but again that was Marianne Faithful telling me that, and I don't really feel like the documentary demonstrated that in any way or even expressed that point further. And and I felt that was an important it felt like it was an important explanation as to why we should feel he has such a legacy.
0: No, that's true. I mean I mean she's a she's a very interesting talking head in it. And to be perfectly honest, I hadn't really realised that she was part of Brian's stable, mm, you know. Yeah. And uh she talks with uh, a great deal of experience of uh, not only the pop industry, but just the 60s in general and that sort of cultural change. And um, she talks about sort of, um, you know, I don't know anything about licensing T-shirt deals. You know, it's completely uninteresting to me, you know. And she said, you know, "I, I don't think it's so bad to not be good at that sort of thing. And she was saying that about the guy who was like in charge of people's you know, commercial future. And actually like one of the, uh, if you extend the whole idea of the fact that he was from a different social strata and was able to open doors for them, it also meant that he had a lot of responsibility for these like Mm -hmm. young working class uh, people who just wanted to play music and be paid for it. And I mean, it, it sounds to me like broadly he did a, he did a good job, you know, but I mean, she's sort of talking about a sort of commercial naivety on his point.
1: Yeah, and 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 I think that's interesting because I feel like the little that I do know about Brian and uh, his management of the Beatles, in particular were that there were business decisions that he made that actually ended up not being as sensible as they could or should have been at the time. Yeah, don't really understand the, all the nuts and bolts of those things, but I understand broadly that there were some things that maybe he you know should have done differently or, yeah. or negotiated differently. Yeah. Um but yeah you're right that is this is interesting that um that Marion people makes that point but and, and I feel like I'm gonna say this a lot <laughs> again I don't feel like the documentary necessarily went that next step further and explored that more. Yeah yeah you know it feels like the kind of documentary it would benefit from a voiceover explaining what happens and, yeah. you know, and, and putting a little bit more context around some of those claims.
0: Yeah. 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 That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, but before you gave that example, yeah, I was about to ask, like, you know, what what is the distinction between a talking head saying something and the film carrying that forward? Mm. Um, but yeah, I, th- that is a good example of the way that the film can do it is that, you know, a documentary is uh, is furthering a narrative. Yes. You know whether it likes it or not, it is furthering a narrative, and uh, it 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 the the traditional view of documentary is that um, oh we're just presenting the facts and this is it you know and so anything these talking heads say is just that's what happened and that's what we're telling you but that that is not how documentaries that's certainly that's not how you make one it's certainly not how you edit one. Yes. Like, exactly, yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah.
1: Uh, and that's a really good point actually. I, I guess I haven't really thought about it before, but yeah, if you when you do have documentaries that decide to only to, to not have narration, but to only carry their story through Talking Heads, then, mm. then actually that introduces a hell of a lot of subjectivity to um uh, to, to what that documentary then delivers. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. While we're on the subject of Talking Heads, what do you think about the, the the rest of the roster of interviewees that the film presents us?
0: Oh, I think it's really it's it's really in depth uh, so like, like i say like you know they certainly haven't they certainly haven't skimped on the talking heads and they're all people who uh, properly have the right to be talking about this subject you know i was thinking that you know this was a real sort of golden age for beetle talking heads almost you know like so if you think about it so a few of these people have already been involved in the anthology or interviewed for it cause there are a few people who were interviewed for it who then didn't really appear in it uh, at, at, you know at not very much or not at all Um, so you can see it in Paul that Paul is definitely I really got the impression with Paul that so he he filmed this interview in November 1997 apparently and he had spent most of you know large chunks of 1992 and 1993 recording interviews for the anthology Mm. and uh, you really get the sense that he knows how to do it you know he knows how to sit in front of a camera and tell an anecdote and I think the way he talks about Brian is slightly odd, which I'm sure we'll get onto later. Mm. But it, it, but also like you have all these people like, you know, George Martin is still alive and George Martin was always happy to talk about the Beatles, you know, yeah. and, um, but then, you know, and you have people like Peter Brown and Alistair Taylor. And these these were people who were around at the time, you know, and like the reason I talk about it as a sort of golden age of Beatles documentaries is a lot of these people just aren't around anymore. Yeah. yeah. And um, one of the reasons why sort of Mark Lewison is, uh, taking so long over these books is that he's he wants to put his time into like interviewing as many people as he can, eyewitnesses while they're still around, around you yeah. know, because you know that's the best way to use this time, you know. Uh,
1: you mentioned uh, Alistair Taylor there, um, who is someone that I wasn't really aware of before this documentary. Yeah. Um, so, from what I understand from this documentary, at the time he was general manager of NEMS, mm-hmm. uh, but in 1998 he is. Man who strolls around lingerie aisles of an Ann Summers store dressed predominantly in a long trench
0: coat. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's,
1: it's a, it's a disarming image when that comes up, yeah. which is, is it the old Nems store yeah. that he's walking around? So it's the, yeah. so it is now an Ann Summers store and there's a, a, a camera following him around whilst he's trying to, explain the layout of the old Nem store, <laughs> yeah. whilst surrounded by onlookers <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and dressed in a long trench coat yeah, I and mean, it is sure. not yeah it's not a um, I, I don't think it does him any favors
0: <laughs> no that's true yeah no i mean uh, so that i mean so we were there this uh, summer weren't yeah. we, you know so we were there when they unveiled the statue of Brian on uh, Whitechapel um, that's great and we've done that walk that Alistair Taylor does from NEMS up Matthew Street up to the Cavern. That was the the interesting thing when they unveiled that statue. Is we were standing in a place where they unveiled it. And we kind of saw the back of his head, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is which an anticlimax. So fantastic! Yeah,
1: there was a massive crowd of people singing Beatles songs for about an hour. <laughs> yeah. whilst we waited for the unveiling, yeah. and the anticipation was palpable. <laughs> yeah. Like in, in the street, there was just a big crowd of people. It was very emotional. People getting quite teary eyed. Yeah, um, whilst they were singing the uh, the you know the uh, latter refrains of Hey. Dude, for a really long time everyone's really getting into the moment yeah and then eventually the countdown happened and they unveiled the statue and it's like oh he's facing the other way yeah yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, you know but there's a, a reason for that is he is facing it, 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 they have staged him um in that statue doing that walk that yes. walk from nems where he walked up that one lunchtime and um to go to the cavern for the first time and it's really lovely the way that they thought to do it that way but anyway Al- alistair taylor is doing that walk and so on the way we hear and he later on the rest of his kind of main talking head staging is he's having a pint in the grapes on my Ma- on matthew street mm. where we've also been yeah um,
1: we didn't pay a visit. to had some store, though. Now I
0: feel like that was a, a big regret. Well, no, but I think it's now... A, oh, it wouldn't be that, Is would it, it a Betfred now or something? Oh, that's depressing, isn't it? People from Liverpool would be able to tell. But yeah, I rem- I remember because I wasn't 100% sure which store it was when we were right. on Wright Chapel and I forgot to look it up, but I think maybe it's a Betfred or something. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, Alistair Taylor on, on the way is talking about the the uh, why uh, Brian took this walk is because people kept on coming into NEMS and asking for my bonnie... And he wants to know what it was. And um, and on the way, Alistair Taylor sort of uh, it kills off the sort of fam- a character who's sort of famous in Beatles Law, yeah. uh, Raymond Jones. Who was apparently, you know, the, the the kid who walked in there and asked for the uh, the record? I My wasn't Bonnie. aware of this
1: before the documentary. I hadn't even heard the name before. Oh, okay. I, when you say it's famous in Beatles lore, this is the first time I'm hearing it. Oh,
0: okay, okay. Um, so he's the one. So in the Birth of the Beatles, do you remember? I said there was a guy, he was uh, there was a kid who was played by a guy who went on to be one of the Scousers in Harry Enfield. Yes, yes. So at the time, I couldn't remember Raymond Jones's name, but that's Raymond right. Jones. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So according to Alistair the Taylor, there was no Raymond Jones. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) and uh, and it was just you know so many people came in that they needed to put someone's name on the order form, so he made up the name Raymond Jones, Mm. you know, and sort of ordered it, and so therefore he had to buy one himself. And so there's a journalist called Spencer Lee later on who tracked down the real Raymond Jones, who was surprised to hear that he, Alistair Taylor, had said he didn't actually exist because he very much does exist. And uh, Mark Lewison uh, has said that, yes, this is verifiably true that Raymond Jones does exist and did go in there. So the reason reason I went on about that at such (laughs) length, uh, there is a reason, I promise, is that I find it really interesting because this is the point in sort of Beatles documentary history Mm. where talking heads are starting to realise that they can carve out a little bit of a name for themselves. Now, listen, I'm not... Uh, it, it, I'm not saying that Alistair Taylor is making stuff up, but I do, uh, could, uh, you know, I think he he probably just misremembered it or whatever it is. But I do think he is he is put to, to put it charitably. I think he's probably misremembered it in a way that uh, puts him at the centre of the story.
1: Yeah, but and that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that's um without straying off topic too much. But I think that's just quite common anyway i think anyone who wants to remember like a, uh, a you know a retelling a good story or a good anecdote or yeah. something is quite common for you know th- there's a big thing that happened uh like here's a big famous event i was there mm. and here's my inside take on it yeah um which just positions me as an authority on the subject because it's not the take that you'd hear elsewhere right but yeah that's interesting because i think that the, the way what you said there about this is the point in beatles documentary history i think it probably coincides a little bit with just the Beatles legacy just becoming, evolving into a bigger thing yes. that, that later on becomes something that, that gets protected. And I think part of the protection of that legacy is almost to limit the the, the number of participants a little bit. I think yeah. there's a tendency to be like, there's a core group that really know the story and, yeah. and actually... You know, the the more that other names come into it, the more that gets uh, diluted, yeah, a, a bit. But so I wonder, there's a bit of a tendency to do to to for that to be like, you know, the 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 Beatles story kind of starts and ends with NEMS, mm. yeah, and, and this idea of other like Kid coming in and contributing it kind of just sort of downplays. Um, yeah. their involvement in that that part of the history. Yeah,
0: maybe. Yeah, and I think... Because I think there is... Because, you, you know, you have pe- people like Peter Brown who are in it as well. Um, but you, you also have... Uh, th- th- there's uh, at least one other a uh, sort of older grey-haired guy who knew Brian and is in the documentary talking about knowing Brian, but who, if I'm honest, their name I can't remember. And, yeah, and that's and- kind of because of that thing about... There, there is a sort of large cast of characters here and it's not always easy to remember who is who and the perspective from which they're talking therefore it's not doing that thing of you know sometimes to remind you it will bring up their name on the screen more every than, single time yeah, yeah. Or, or at least more than once yeah, like sure. every second or third time or whatever it is yeah. you know which they don't really do here because i
1: because i know exactly the person you're talking about and it it wasn't until he'd come back into the documentary like the sort of third or fourth time where i was like oh you're you you seem to have a bigger role in this story than i first anticipated mm. and i actually went back to try and find out what it was and i couldn't find it i didn't right. i didn't rewatch it again from scratch but i was i was rewinding back through and trying to be like you know did, did at any point did they actually say his name I'm yeah. what i did but i missed it um at the other end of the spectrum you've got a guy who is in the documentary who off the top of my head I couldn't tell you now what his relation to, uh, Brian Epstein and his story is at all. Yep. But I know for a fact that his name was apparently Yankel Feather.
0: Right. Yes. Because that's
1: a name that appears on screen and you're not forgetting that anytime soon. <laughs> that right? is true. So, <laughs> so, there's, there's, there's two, there's, there's, there's the two things happening there. There's, there's, uh, faces, no names, and then there's, brilliant names
0: <laughs> yeah name faces. He, yeah Yankle Feather is there for I think he gives sort of one quote and I forget what he says because I was just too distracted by his name <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest yeah. and he is uh, listed as artist and club owner and that is the end of Yankle Feather. yeah like, absolutely like, you don't you don't Yankle see him again
1: Yanklefeather now that I think about it sounds like the kind of accessory that would be available in the Isle of an summer <laughs> <Clubhouse> store <laughs> I am assuming I've never uh, been in one. I don't no, 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 me neither.
0: No, <laughs> no idea. I've never even heard of Ansonis. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They
1: charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: And and also, you know, you find with Peter Brown. So, you know, Peter Brown is another guy who was uh, was around a lot. He was a sort of personal assistant to the Beatles um, for, you know, a a lot of their career. So he's talking about times when they were on tour. And he he quite casually says, uh, oh, then we went to Japan uh, where there was an attempt on their lives. And I was like, whoa, uh, an attempt, an actual attempt on their life. He mentions the word assassination and i was thinking oh uh what well, you know so i i know there was a lot of controversy about them playing at the budokan and i'm sure there were there were death threats and things like that but to be honest that was not massively uncommon wherever they were going but come 65 66 yeah. but in terms of an actual attempt on their lives i'm not sure how verifiable that is and it's just another thing of i don't know just people just quite quite casually uh, you know uh, saying Quite a big thing about their career that doesn't appear to be verified. You See, know?
1: that's that's interesting because I that stuck out to me as well. Yeah, and um, I, and I, I thought that yeah, that's a that's a very strongly way of that's a very strong way of phrasing that, but I just took it to mean uh, he meant the death threats. Um, but I guess the reason why that's different for me and you is that I didn't realise that there were any other instances of that happening before Japan, right. right? So I guess I kind of, that's, you know, from, I guess from what I've seen in other documentaries and stuff, that's normally in relation to that tour, yeah. um, where that first started to happen. So I just assumed that he meant that and actually calling it a, uh, what is it, a, what's it an attempt on their lives yeah. was yeah. just over-aging. Um <laughs> oh the perfectly innocent thing the death, right. <laughs> yeah, 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 Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it's been a bit dramatic. <laughs> yeah, but I mean come on, get over it guys. <laughs> yeah, a few of death, right. <laughs> um but yeah, that's what I, I took that to mean that as well. But yeah, I you're you're right in the sense that this is um uh another way in which uh some of the talking heads put their stamp on the narrative yeah a uh, little bit and yeah. um and it does mean that, that it starts to contort the story
0: a little bit a, a bit yeah and but we had this in the you know the sergeant pepper documentary mm-hmm. we we're talking about the same thing of just, people have a habit of just putting themselves at the center of the story which you know is uh maybe partly self-promotion but a lot of it i think is just human nature as you say you know it's it's just um it's almost human nature to sort of almost frame a story you know like how many times have you told an anecdote that was that actually happened to a mate of yours, but it's just a better anecdote if you say it happened to me, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, not big things, not like, you know, not like <laughs> yeah, I saved a child from a burning building or anything like that, you know, but um, but just sometimes, you know, it's just an easier way to frame things. Yeah, yeah, no, I Just know what you mean. to yeah, get around. Yeah. yeah, it's a shorthand kind of thing. I know what you mean. You know.
1: Um, yes, yeah, yeah. And also, like, what's the point in telling the story of, you know, if if you're going to talk about something that happened to the Beatles that is in the public consciousness, Mm. what's the point in telling that story unless you're giving your own perspective of that same story? Yeah, Yeah. And then that automatically puts you at the centre of that, you know? Yeah. Shall we talk about the more Beatly elements of the Talking Heads? Yeah. This is going to sound quite strong. I apologise in advance. (laughs) Right. This is the first instance i think of me seeing paul mccartney in a film like this where i kind of actively dislike what he's saying yeah um i don't think he comes across well i I think that a lot of what he says has dated badly in terms of like kinds of phrases he uses around brian epstein's personal life yes i think that's aged badly i think some of the things he says is, is comes across immediately as naive and really naff and cringy, which is yeah. perfectly in keeping, I think, with his reputation at the time or his image at the time, I should say. Mm. But also, there were, there's, there's some stuff that he says where I, I kind of feel like it's, it's um, distasteful, yeah. the, the way that he's saying it. Yeah. So, let's break things down a little bit. The first time we see Paul McCartney on screen is within, I think, the first few minutes of the film. Um, and the film starts... Um, and I have problems with this as well, but the film starts with uh, information about how Brian Epstein died.
0: Yeah.
1: And Paul McCartney's contribution to that narrative is, oh, I think he just, you know, was really sleepy. So he used to wake up and be like, oh, why am I awake? I'll just take some more sleeping pills. Mm. And it's, it's it feels a bit like uh, a very naive thing to, a very naive explanation yeah. uh, about it's the kind of thing that like your dad might say when he doesn't quite understand how drugs work. Yeah You know what I mean? It's a yes. bit like, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, if you're taking sleeping pills, then you're too sleepy to realize whether or not you're taking any sleeping pills. So you just take more. <laughs> right? yeah. And yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Like, is that really what happens?
0: Yeah. I think, so I think, uh, so that bit, I think it should be set in context. in it. so there is, uh, it's a TV or radio interview in it might even be desert island discs but don't quote me on well you have to quote me on that this is a podcast i can't get right can't get around it on it. Record now. But, uh, God. Uh, but uh but uh, but yeah so there is a there is an interview of mccartney i think in the 80s where the interviewer says uh, and of course uh, your manager brian epstein who killed himself in 1967 and paul is very very firm about no I don't like it when people say he killed himself there's no evidence for that and in mm. fact the inquest did you know did not record a suicide so when he uh, and he kind of mentions it in this documentary a bit, you know oh you know people said he killed himself uh, I don't think he did you know so he is I think starting from a slightly defensive position and I think that's maybe and I, I agree with you that does come across quite naive but I kind of get why he's saying it I, I think it's
1: you know you explain that I think it's um it's more the idea of the way uh, the way he presents it is like a perfectly innocent situation that could have happened to one of the protagonists from Last of the Summer Wine or something. Right? <laughs> right. It's, like, okay. it's not like you know. I understand that accidental overdoses happen. Yeah, right. But there were not in like... a bath going down a hill. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, his explanation kind of bypasses this idea of, of, you know, maybe it's just how it's termed, but, you know, when you talk about half-empty bottles of barbiturates, yeah. that automatically takes on a tone to yeah, it, yeah. whereas his explanation is much more, like, homely and be yeah. like, I just thought he was a
0: bit sleepy, and <laughs> I thought
1: maybe he just have some more pills, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, like you know, there's there's not an, an ounce of grit to the fact that mm-hmm. someone has died as a result of this, it's yeah. just this, like, like silly little happenstance that's happened, you know?
0: yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, it is, well, it's, as I said, like you know, I think he's he's got quite comfortable being a talking head now, mm. uh, post anthology. But I wonder if maybe he's got a bit too comfortable almost,
1: yeah. I think, I think at that point, I think he's now, you know, we covered uh, McCartney 321 earlier, mm. where you know, he's he's obviously re- reeling out uh, well-worn anecdotes there. I think he's much more self-aware of the image he's presenting as he's doing uh, those kinds of interviews yeah. uh, on camera. But I think in the Anthropology series, uh, which obviously we'll get to eventually, and um, in, the, uh, in in this one here, this period, I don't think he's as self-aware of, his, of how he's coming across no. as he's saying that kind of stuff. Case in point as well is, I guess, you know, there's some of the some of the later things he says in the documentary as well he talks about without any without any concern or about any censorship he'll talk about how uh my dad always thought jewish people were good with money mm. so like you know Brian up you know it seemed like a good choice for manager like yeah you know and and i realized it's again it's a different time different there's been different sensitivity or sensibility now mm. to then but there is a bit of a cringe aspect to not just what he says, but to, to some of the other talking heads as well about certain phrases and and terms they're using when talking about Brian or, you know, mm. what's happened to him at the time.
0: Yeah, I think... So, I mean, Paul does fra that comment about what his dad said about Jewish people. Like, Paul does phrase that as, you know, uh, you know uh, that was kind of how people thought at the time. So, he <laughs> he doesn't wholly... Uh, distance himself from that view mm. and and you know i'm not saying that he uh, that, that you know that is how he thinks but i if he were making this documentary now yeah he would be much more careful to distance himself from that and say that you know of course you know that's how people thought those times exactly you know that. i understand yeah. that that's a stereotype then it's not true um i think also like you know so he says when the when he's talking about Brian's sexuality, he says, you know, the, uh, he says, okay, well, the word was queer, not gay, yes, at the time, yeah, yeah. you know, and uh, there's no, and again, it, I mean, this is um, this is the result of um, uh, you know this having been filmed in 1997 and released in 1998. Is that actually? I just feel like he would have softened that a little bit, uh, but uh, but he also the, the way he talks about his sexuality, as he says, well, this. You know, we always kind of suspected that he might hit on one of us. And like he says, "I, you know, I don't know the truth of the John rumor, which is problematic in itself. um, But uh, but but then he says, um, but, you know, I, I slept with John a lot. You know, I slept in the same bed with John, you know, and so to my knowledge, John was never gay. And it's like, okay, but I mean, but the extension of that is basically what you're saying is if John did have any homosexual tendencies, then he definitely would have tried to get off with me. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: You know, yeah. which is
1: and, and, and there's a lot there's a lot of um the way he talks around the whole subject of primary sexuality is mm. problematic. Yes. massively problematic. Yeah. I've written down here in my notes um that when the subject comes up about Brian's sexuality one of the first things Paul says is the great thing about it was it didn't affect us at all <laughs> which is like good way to make his sexuality about you Paul
0: <laughs> so true yeah. yeah, yeah. Um,
1: but yeah but you're right like in, in the John thing aside there there is a tendency to still mire Brian's personal life in this idea of it being something that's, that that was relatively shameful or you know, the language is mm. used is like about it being secretive or yeah. or something he might have had like a hidden agenda or who knew or you know, and it's just like this idea that it's um to, to, you know, it's it's far less natural in a way, which is still I guess, you know, it's these are present day sensibilities um being put upon a film that came out in 1998, but mm. it still feels quite shocking now because we've moved
0: on so much since then. Yeah, yeah, because, like, you know, Paul's starting point, um, it's not even his fault necessarily, but, like, his starting point for the discussion, maybe he was prompted this way, mm. is, uh, well, he didn't fancy us, you know. Yes. Like, yeah, it, yeah. It, this basically, you know, I want to make it clear, like, you know, obviously Brian was gay, he didn't fancy us, you know, yeah. like, obviously, you know, these days, there's no need to answer that question because yeah, course, no, yeah. nobody has asked you, you know? <laughs> yes. and, uh, <laughs> and But, yeah, I think there's a nice thing that Simon Napier-Bell says uh, later. He's he's a talking head here, as he is in the Sergeant Pepper documentary that we've covered before as well. And, it, you know, these are the only two Beatles documentaries I think I've ever seen him in because uh, he was a, a sort of friend and confidant of Brian's and he's mm-hmm. a very valuable one. He's actually quite underused, I think. Um, and he says, I think it was less about him fancying any of the Beatles and more about the significance of him just sort of being a loner who's now been allowed into a group yeah yeah I thought that was really insightful yeah and and he tells this really nice story about how Brian once sort of went to the back of the gig and screamed with the girls in a way and just let himself go in a way he'd always wanted to and I thought well that's that's lovely you know and actually that is one of the few bits where someone is actually kind of getting into his personality rather than just here's a guy who had inner demons
1: completely completely agree yeah, yeah that's it that that feels that was really that felt like a revealing insight into a moment of Ryan's life that says a lot about him as a person yeah there were, there were, this is me talking about this BAFTA winning documentary <laughs> saying I don't think there are enough of those in I, this yeah. BAFTA winning documentary. Yeah. But I really don't like I think that that was that was sort of my main takeaway from watching it was I really liked hearing that about about him and um and yeah I, d- I just didn't get a sense of it in enough of those kinds of moments so i could have done with more yeah just certainly back to paul um, we should touch on what he says about john because yeah it, it i found it really frustrating he he basically he talks about how there are rumors about how john and brian had some kind of uh sexual relationship yeah but does that thing where he's like well, I wasn't aware of it. So, like, mm. you know, I didn't see it happen. I'm not saying it didn't, but as far as I'm aware, it probably didn't because I didn't see it, but who knows? Yeah, and it's right, like, yeah. I mean, you're, what you're doing is adding fuel to the fire by, by not shutting it down. Yeah. And you're prompting speculation by, um, by saying what you're saying. Yeah. And I feel like there's no way he doesn't realize he's doing that. Yeah. yeah definitely so what is what's his what's his end game there like what 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 what, why why do that is he it just it feels really odd i think the the film generally has an unnecessarily salacious approach to this to to brian anyway in covering Mm. um his life but that moment where paul does that it feels like unnecessarily distasteful
0: yeah it's you know and it's sort of I was trying to sort of consider like where Paul was in life at the time when he re- records this interview. So like I say, he's obviously spent a lot of time doing the anthology. We're told that the process of going through the anthology really made him sort of reconnect with his feelings about being in the Beatles. And, you know, and then, you know, so this year that he records this interview, he's he's released Flaming Pie which is like he puts it as you know i was sort of getting back to the way we recorded with the beatles flaming pie you know it has been probably his most critically well received album since i'm going to say tug of war or something like that you know it's been a long time since people have been saying this is a really good paul mccartney album mm. and like we know he's very conscious of um, that kind of public opinion so it, it so it's it, it's kind of at odds in a way, because also, you know, this is the time, the start of his public rehabilitation, like you've got the, you, all the Britpop crowd in the 90s have been talking for the last four years or so about how great the Beatles are, you know, McCartney has been sort of in, in, invited um into those uh, in, 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 in into those circles as well you know he's done things like mm-hmm. rocking up at Abbey Road with Weller and Noel Gallagher when they're recording that come together yeah, cover yeah, in 1995 yeah. you know he's he, he's hip again right you know people are saying oh people are thinking of Paul McCartney as you know that it, it, his legacy is sort of on, on its way back to being rehabilitated as it, as it is now and it's strange that he, this just seems like a step back, you know, in I terms just, of where he is. You I, know.
1: I kind of felt like it was a bit, because you're right, you know, on that path of rehabilitating his image, uh, where we're at now, it felt like, for, for me at the time in the 90s, it felt like um, that was it restored then. And it's only now that you can see actually there were so many more steps that he wanted to make along that way, such as redressing... Who actually wrote some songs and like, mm. the, the credits uh for songwriting and things like correcting this view of uh, Lennon being the avant garde uh, person in the Beatles? Mm. You're going to take issue with that, aren't you?
0: You're right, actually, because this is the m- he's released many years from now in 1997 as well, hasn't he? And right. that, that, yes, is, yeah. that is the book in which he starts to do that thing. So this, saying, this to me this felt like, was... a little bit
1: like. He's, he's still a bit bitter at this idea of... This yeah. total speculation on my part. No, no, but, but this idea that Lennon is still seen as the artistic one Yeah, and it's a really cheap way of sort of sticking the knife in a little bit uh, and sort of harming his image. Or not necessarily even harming it, yeah. but, you know, just, just sort of changing the narrative a little bit in a, in a kind of like a cheap way. Cheap way.
0: It's interesting, yeah, because actually I hadn't thought, yeah, because many years from now, many years from now is when he uh, starts to try and claw back uh, uh, some of that. And he's uh, certainly when he makes his first real public land grab in terms of these songs were, you know, it has like quite a, it's quite unedifying in a way that that book is, is. they're sort of going through songs, and he's saying, "Well, I think that one was kind of seventy percent me, thirty percent John." So, and mm. actually like, dividing them up into almost percentages, you know, yeah. which is just, you know, um, it's
1: very, a bit unseemly, isn't it? It's a
0: little bit unseemly, but uh, but I mean, in in his defence, you can see why, uh, yeah. and he is trying to uh, get away from this idea that has existed you know, since the Rolling Stone interview in nineteen seventy, yeah. but uh, but especially since John died that. You know, John was the genius, and this guy was the lightweight who backed him up. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. so fair enough. So yes, set in that context, if he's that book has come out in nineteen ninety seven, and now he's giving this interview, yes, it does make a bit more sense. Yeah, but it's still
1: still it's. I mean, it makes sense, but it makes sense in a sort of makes me feel like it's a it's a bitter Mm. sort of act to take to do that because I just don't feel like there's enough substance behind. The, the notion of John and Brian uh, having any kind of sexual relationship together, for him to even warrant it any kind of airtime in an interview. But the fact no. that he does feels like it's a, a, an attempt to be sort of deliberately malicious in, in a way. Yeah, yeah.
0: And by the way I mean, in in more recent interviews when that subject has come up he said no definitely not yeah
1: exactly yeah, yeah. and I think,
0: yeah. you know and it's not like he has any new information <laughs> no, no, exactly. now that he yeah. didn't have then right yeah. so yeah there, there has been a change in attitude I suppose yeah. a change in and, approach. And I, think, yeah. I think again
1: it's that being self aware of your image like knowing how you come across when you're saying certain things it's not necessarily reflecting on that person but it's also reflecting on you for saying it I think he's yeah. more aware of that now
0: yeah, yeah.
1: The other thing is uh, Lennon, uh, and and the use of footage or or interview excerpts from him mm-hmm. in this film. As much as Paul doesn't come across well in other ways, I don't think Lennon comes across particularly well either uh, no. in this film. There are, uh, and not not least because of the some of the language he uses, which uh, you know there are obviously very out. Dated terms uh, that he employs here. Yes. But the, one of the very first things he, we hear him say, and I've never heard this before, I'm sure you probably have, is he, him talking about, I knew Brian Epstein very well because if someone's going to manage me, I need to know them inside out. So I introduced him to pills, and then he says something about there being like a guilt association with his death there. Mm. And then basically he explains that it was through introducing him to pills, was to loosen him up enough to get Brian to come out to him as gay right but it the way john, the way lennon explains it it's almost like i deliberately gave him pills in order for him to to reveal information about himself to me that he otherwise might have been uncomfortable to yeah and it feels like that's quite a manipulative thing to do it doesn't seem particularly yeah uh, in keeping for someone that was otherwise a close friend
0: yeah no, th- yeah i think um actually i think that the john interview footage is all from the Jan Wanner Rolling Stone interview I think it's the audio tapes from that I get it so th- that is certainly credited in the credits at the end whether it's all from that I'm not sure but um, and so obviously that is uh, that is the interview that set the tone for this whole uh, uh, idea of you know the differences in personality between Lennon and McCartney that kind of uh, right. prol- proliferated for so long and still do to some extent and uh, But it is famously a very, very caustic interview in yeah. which he is uh, just killing every sacred cow that comes along that he can get his hands on. And, you know, who, who knows whether he even believed any of it or changed his mind five minutes later, as, as always with him. But no, you're right. It's So it's it, it's odd, I suppose, if th- well, you think about the fact that, I mean, when this was being filmed, uh, Sir so George... Harrison was still alive and Ringo was, is still alive, you know? So, I mean, um, and so a, I wonder if they were asked mm-hmm. to be involved. I, I can imagine that George probably like, I think he was pretty sick of the anthology stuff. Yeah, he just yeah, didn't yeah. he, Cause he only did that under sufferance in the first place, I think. Um, so probably would not have wanted to get involved. Um, you know, uh, Ringo as well. I don't know, but I think there is an, odd imbalance in terms of the Beatles talking about Brian in that it's really only ever John and Paul that you hear from
1: yeah so I was going to ask you about this because I I'm I'm basing this on much more limited I guess documentary um films and stuff that I've seen compared to you yeah uh I can't quite remember off the top of my head without a rewatch uh how much we have of George and Ringo talking about um uh, Brian in the anthology mm. series yeah And I wondered whether there might be other films that we'll end up watching and exploring in this podcast that will will sort of change my mind about this. But right now, I'm of the same opinion. I don't really remember, off the top of my head, any um, interview I've seen where they talk about their relationship with Brian, which is weird because we are constantly told about what a good relationship Brian had with all four guys.
0: Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, yeah. I mean, you know, I've seen the anthology several times um, and top of my head I can't think of a lot I can't think of specific quotes of George or Ringo talking about Brian Yeah, it, it, it does seem to well I mean it, it, the implication well the inference you might draw from that is that you know John and Paul being the, the leaders if you like that sort of Brian was mainly dealing with them I'm sure that's not the case Paul
1: makes that point in this documentary doesn't he he says that he felt that John, he he says specifically whether or not this is true, um, uh, that J- he feels like John would have gone up to Brian and said, "If you want to talk to the band about anything, it's all you come through me." Yeah. Um, again, I don't know if that's Paul sort of chipping away a little bit at John Lennon's um, image or reputation, like because it because yeah. it, it's a, it's quite a pointed thing to to say about someone. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also equally, you can imagine that being true. Uh, the kind of personality that John was yeah yeah
0: um
1: but there's still a, a long time that Brian would have spent with each of the you have thought at least Ringo would be on camera saying a nice thing or two about Brian, right?
0: Yeah, because, I mean, you know, because that's a
1: bad word same anybody.
0: Yeah, and also let's be honest, it's not that hard to get Ringo to be a talking head on your documentary. No, exactly. Yeah. He he's, he seems to be generally pretty happy to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I mean, you know, who who knows? Who knows you know, knows. It's, it's scheduling conflicts or whether they even just didn't ask him. You so know, I guess the, what I'm
1: left with is an overall impression of the film that Brian Epstein is. Mostly remembered for being the manager of the Beatles, and of the four Beatles, the two that appear in the film don't actually come across very well <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, and it's a bit of a sorry situation to be in, I think, where yeah. that's the that's your main connection to to sort of pop culture, and, and it's just seems a little bit underserved by um, by what we actually get in this film.
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, talking about you know the the warmth that a lot of the uh, a lot of them talk about. Uh, A a lot of the the talking heads in the film uh, talk about Brian. Um, But there is, I think maybe it's Marianne Faithful who like really um, stresses like how much he cared in a genuine way about not only the Beatles, but all, you know, the acts that he had, you know, so you've got sort of Billy J. Kramer is there saying, yeah, every time, if it was my birthday, he would always turn up and he'd always have a gift for me. And, you know, and if there was anything financial, you know, needed doing You know, I think Jerry Marsden makes that point as well. And, you know, we're also told or reminded about how, um, you know, the Beatles moved from Liverpool down to London, which is a big deal, you know, because they're, I don't know, 20... uh, Ranging from 21 to 24 or whatever they are at the time. Uh, You know, you're all moving to London. And, you know, and he uh, set up George and Ringo in a flat on Park Lane, Mm -hmm. you know, and just you know it's that takes um that's proper sort of pastoral care you yeah. know it's it, it it's it, it's not the actions of someone you know it 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 sounds a lot like he didn't outsource that to other someone else in his organization yes I and i, mean I think know. it was the building that he lived in, in as well yeah yeah that's, um, right. yeah, that's you what know. they say yeah. and um th- that speaks to someone who was genuinely compassionate you know, and, and, you know, and I think at, at near the end of the film when um, Robert Stigwood is talking about the offer that Brian made him to um, take over, you know, a controlling share. And it sounds like what Brian wanted to do was just hand over the management of everything but the Beatles mm. and just manage the Beatles himself. Yeah, And um, it sounds a lot like that's the thing that really gave him pleasure, you know as well as you know the uh the theater which is something that he loved and actually you know they get into that a bit in the documentary about you know him yeah. um uh you know him and the savile theater where he used to you know he used to run shows on sunday nights you'd have people like jimi hendrix playing there and things like that you know um but yeah and it, it, i think it does it, it doesn't quite serve him well enough with things like um you know a. a the passion for acting that he had, you know, because he, um, he had sort of attempts, I think, you know, before, before he was the Beatles manager, before he was running NEMS, I think he was, um, in, uh, he came down to London to study acting, That's right. you know, and was, and was there, you know, and, and was there for a little while. And I, and I just, I feel like, um, the documentary really only kind of tells us these, it tells us things like this uh, as a way of leading up to, and then he managed the Beatles. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah, know? yeah. I was going to say that, yeah. And, yeah. And, and if you are trying to sort of get behind uh, the man we think we know, which with its framing, like I say, with all the kind of slowed down footage and things, that seems to be what you're claiming to do, get mm-hmm. behind the... Uh, get behind the image um that, that actually if you're not going to flesh out things like that then what are you what are you really doing you
1: know? yeah yeah i think that's fair I, I think to to maybe to the film's credit i mean, you know a lot of things you just said there uh, are positive things that we understand about brian based on what has come through um you know in the, the talking head interviews um that we've criticised the documentary for, but I do feel like they're details that we've had to glean for ourselves because the documentary isn't willingly giving that information to us. It's yes, you know what what we're, we're sort of what we what we're picking up, what we're doing to read between the lines about what kind of person he was based yeah. on what people are saying.
0: Yeah.
1: On a cheerier note, yeah, let's talk about how awful the music in this documentary is. <laughs>
0: Sure. (laughs) Because
1: the very first thing that struck me about this film when it started was that, first of all, the the film opens with um, talk about how Brian Epstein died. There were lots of lingering shots of close up pictures of Brian's face. Mm -hmm. And whilst we have talking heads talking about the, the circumstances of his death, the music that's playing in the background are really like sort of dark ominous tones, some sort of spooky wailing going on. It is absolutely the kind of thing that now would be reserved only for documentaries about serial killers and their victims.
0: Not not even just now. I mean, at at the time as well, I'm sure.
1: And uh, again, it's it's this um, idea that this documentary seems preoccupied with there being... Sort of a hidden, shameful part of Brian's life. And I, and I know that there is part of his life that he what he was forced to have to keep hidden. Hmm. But for a documentary, a BAFTA winning documentary, <laughs> um, called The Brian Epstein Story, it seems mu- much too preoccupied with that part of his life than his actual career and, and legacy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, all, all this framing, um, uh, which you know includes the music, um, and also lots of, as we said, um, w- when you're sort of doing audio clips, there's lots of sort of radio interviews with him that are, that are very good and interesting sources, by the way, that, uh, um, that that we're hearing. But you need something on screen while that's happening, yeah. and the choice they make quite often is that what we see is um, th- th- there are TV screens that play. Images of Brian slowly, like he's been slowed down, and uh, we see um, what do you call it. It's like uh, when uh, I think it's like the V hold on the TV, where the um, do you remember when like the black bar sort of comes down every now and again? Yes. You know, so yeah. you're kind of seeing, and so this is almost, you know, it's quite a sort of postmodern technique of uh, uh, filming. A television screen with the subject on it, as opposed mm. to filming the subject um, or showing you footage of the subject. Um, and w- what it's doing is kind of saying, um, "This uh, this was a famous man," but also through the um, th- through the the slowing down. Uh, and and by the way, this is not uh, these are not there's not footage for him doing anything particularly, yeah, other yeah. than just kind of standing there and talking to an interviewer, yeah, or, or whatever. Um, but it's slowed down, and and really, what that kind of says to you as a viewer is, um, th- is that there is something going on behind the scenes, you know, like we've slowed this footage down so that we can better explore, you know, the specific uh, facial mannerisms. Of this man, who you know, it's it is saying inner demons. This Mm. guy had inner demons, yes, exactly. And and that's the thing that um, uh, that kind of serial killer framing uh, suggests to you, because you know, it's the same thing as uh, this guy. You know, this this guy who ended up killing thirteen people was was abused by his parents, and you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's exactly the same framing, right down to as we've discussed before. The thing where you see a still image of someone and then it slowly focuses in on their eyes, <laughs> yes, which is a classic yeah. serial killer framing, and it's, yeah. it's um, and it's such an odd creative choice. Uh, and I know we, you know we've spoken before about films only having certain ways to express an idea to you, um, and it may be that do- you know documentaries hadn't developed uh, far enough at that time.
1: Well, yeah, this is, but this is and I was thinking about this because I think that you know there's a lot to be said for. Documentary as a medium have been evolved so much since then that we now know how to how to well documentarians know how to make certain choices that portray their subjects in in a particular way there are rules now around uh how that's done and maybe this film should be given certain allowances for uh for the being the start of that sort of uh evolution of, of the medium yeah but I can't imagine that the filmmakers weren't aware of the sense that they were giving with the choices they were making yeah you know it's very very ominous as it turns
0: yeah yeah well you know there's a story being told um, I guess um, I think i you know I spoke on a previous episode about how uh, I always felt like in the anthology Brian, Brian was given sort of fairly short shrift by just there was the month not that it, it was the only time you saw him but uh there was the montage over you got to hide your love away. Yeah. And I always thought that was quite reductive.
1: Which film this this film also employs it's a cover of Hide is, Your Love Away that, that right. plays yeah. as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, this um this is reductive in a slight well it it, it it's reductive but also it is suggesting something about him that I don't know. It's a, like I say, the, the film just feels at odds with its talking heads. You know, they're, they're saying warm things about him and yeah. it, it seems to be going out of its way to imply a coldness about the, him. The, you know? the,
1: the, the thing that I, I the main thing that I didn't, I was told, but didn't see in the film was constantly being told how charming and witty he was mm. um, and how he, how he would always be able to hold his own with with the the boys, uh with the lads. Um, but that's you know that's that's the Talking Heads telling me that I'd have liked to have seen evidence of it, and instead the film is is sort of giving me these um, sinister vibes um, because mm-hmm. it sort of seems more interested in the the inner demons, like you say.
0: Yeah, but I suppose in his so the footage uh, that they have that, uh, that could uh, potentially show you that is the interview footage that exists of him, you know, the video Mm -hmm. interview footage that exists in which uh, I'm not sure his charm is particularly coming across in those interviews because he was quite, um, uh, because he was sort of quite, uh, quite proper in a way, you know, and when it came to, you know, I'm talking to the BBC, you know, so so I I guess he's probably not being too um, charming or informal in that sense, you know, but, you know, but there are, uh, there are bits where uh, they use still images of him in quite, effective ways at times there's one where whichever talking head is talking and um you kind of start on his uh, it's that it's a still image of brian in a suit and he's standing up and it starts at his feet and kind of slowly pans up and actually and this suit that you're seeing is um it You know, it fits him perfectly and it's so, you know, it's obviously nice and expensive and, you know, and it's going up to like, you know, there's going to be like an image of a, a man who is like completely put together. And then it, but in, it just in his face, when they get to his face, there's just an uncertainty, mm. uh, as the kind of always was in his face, you know. And, but, you know, I, I feel like that, that was kind of, uh, whether they intended that or not, I have no idea, but I, you know, I found it quite effective. Mm. But it, but it's, it, it, it's odd that they're kind of using some of these, Quite subtle techniques, if that was a technique, versus the, this sort of odd sledgehammer technique, uh, you know, of the of the eerie music and, yes, and all yeah, the rest yeah. of it. You know.
1: And 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 again on the music, I know we talked about the the sort of eerie type music uh, that we've um, talked about there, but elsewhere in documentary, the music is equally dreadful in different ways. <laughs> I find um, <laughs> you know, it, I, I always feel like the 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 music choices um the and this is purely incidental music that's been um uh, played in in sort of in the background scenes not not the songs that they're choosing um but it ranges from um uh the dramatic choir at the uh epstein synagogue yeah uh at the start of the film which make which feels like this is a big epic like almost like you'd, you'd have in like a horror film or yeah, something, yeah, you know, yeah, sort of yeah. religious horror yeah, yeah. um to when Alistair Taylor's in the uh, Ann Summers store, um, there's sexy jazz playing. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and it just, like, there's no... The, the through line is, um, uh, show what's happening on screen and then die it up a thousand. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's the sense I got from it. I, I thought it was tonally all over the place and always inappropriately too much. Um, that's just a, a problem I had <laughs> in general that I really need to get off my chest.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there's some of. I mean, you know, there's there's always that thing of like whenever 1967 comes up, and lots of documentaries guilty of this. It's, um, uh, you know, it's uh, oh here's the sitar music, you know. Yes. And yeah, uh, yeah. although oh, in, yeah. in this instance, uh, maybe just to make it more eerie, it's kind of like um, the sort of snake charmer.
1: Mm. Yes, that's right. Yes, well, there's I, there's a. Um, I couldn't tell you what It's like a woodwind. Is, um part in it which i thought was really odd. Yeah. Um yeah, like a like a almost like a like a pan flute or something. it right. just sounded very strange. Well, i think that covers everything for uh the Brian Epstein story. Um anybody listening at home, what do you think about the film? Have you seen it? Do you agree with us uh about where the documentary works and where it doesn't work? Let us know. You can contact us on all the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. You can also leave us a review of this particular episode or any other episode you've uh, listened to and enjoyed on the series. Otherwise, we will see you again for a new episode next week. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.